Thanks for Sports Network listeners. Welcome to another episode of The Call Sheet. Kevin Smith with you once again. Hope everybody had a great holiday. Hope Santa was good to you. I've got a, I got a 10-year-old and a 5-year-old in the house. So with Santa coming and everything that that entails, I would guess you could probably envision what my house looks like right now. It looks like a small bomb was detonated. Uh, there's just stuff everywhere. So I'm going to try to ignore that for a little bit. Uh, focus obviously here on the NFL and what is really now, of course, shaping up to be an intriguing NFL season, but we're down to the last two weeks. I think we're starting to get a pretty good idea what the playoff picture is going to look like, at least at the top. The last couple of spots in each conference is going to be a big battle over these next two weeks. That's going to be awesome to talk about. So there's a lot to get to today. So in today's show, episode 37, there's a theme to today's show, and the theme is redemption, right? We're going to talk about the theme of redemption in part one, and then in part two, we're going to look at the marquee game of this past weekend, this Christmas weekend, the Baltimore-San Francisco game, Monday night's final contest, and we're going to talk about three takeaways from that game and what they may imply for the upcoming NFL playoffs. Okay, but to begin, as we always do, a NFL player who wore or wears the number of the episode, and it's number 37. There have been some really good NFL players to wear 37. A bunch of them have been defensive backs. Like if you go back to the late 1970s, early 1980s, you get to, to Mike Reinfeldt, uh, D back for the then Houston Oilers. Uh, who had 12 interceptions in 1979, just too short of the NFL record. The very next year, a fellow number 37, Lester Hayes of the Oakland Raiders, the king of Stickham, right? One of the first NFL defensive backs who I really remember watching and kind of emulating, not emulating him as a player because as a Steeler fan, the Raiders were a big rival back then but more emulating Lester Hayes because of how ridiculous he he sort of looked with his hands uh, just absolutely dripping with stickum, which is a substance that has since been banned by the NFL. It was basically almost like a glue, which made it a, uh, virtually impossible for you to drop a pass. And Lester Hayes was darn good at picking them off. He had 13 interceptions in 1980, uh, just one short of the NFL record, which for those of you who are astute NFL historians, has been held now for over 70 years. That's a record that'll be really interesting to see if and when it's broken. It feels like an attainable record. The record for the most interceptions in a single season is 14, set by Dick Night Train Lane, one of the great nicknames of all time. Dick Night Train Lane of the Los Angeles Rams in 1952. Uh, he had 14 interceptions, so a pair of a pair of 37s. Mike Reinfeld of the Houston Oilers and Lester Hayes of the Oakland Raiders came close in respective years, 1979-1980. Uh, more recently, some good D-backs, Steelers fans, I'm sure all remember Carnell Lake, hard-hitting safety out of UCLA, played for those, those good mid-'90s Steelers teams. Rodney Harrison, multiple super champ. Super Bowl champ for the New England Patriots in the early 2000s. A couple of good running backs, Sean Alexander, Larry Centers. So, man, there's been some very good football players to wear number 37. But I mentioned that today's first part of today's episode is about redemption. 
And I arrived at that theme while watching the New England-Denver game on Sunday night. And New England's kicker, Chad Ryland, a rookie, a fourth-round draft pick out of the University of Maryland, who wears number 37, won that game with a 56-yard field goal with two seconds remaining to give the Patriots a 26-23 upset win at Mile High Stadium in Denver and really pretty much kill Denver's playoff hopes. But Chad Ryland, they had done an entire montage of Chad Ryland kicks earlier in the game because he missed both a field goal and an extra point in that contest. And that led to a montage that they ran on the telecast of Chad Ryland missing kicks. It hasn't been a great rookie year for him. The fact that he was a fourth-round draft pick uh, is a big deal because kickers really don't get drafted that often and certainly not that high. You know, you, you might you might take a kicker in the sixth or seventh round. A lot of kickers are signed as free agents, undrafted free agents. But the Patriots spent a fourth-round pick, a valuable pick, on Chad Ryland out of the University of Maryland and entering – that Denver game, he was just 13 out of 20 on field goals this year, a 65%, uh, 65 uh, make percentage. That's not very good for a kicker. And so there was a lot of pressure on him. Uh, and, you know, and, and, he, and he had missed an extra point and a field goal. And so coming down the stretch, they asked Ryland to kick a 56-yarder, and he nailed it. And the, the word that popped in my head immediately was, ah, redemption. Redemption for for old Chad Ryland there. So, so Chad Ryland, number 37 of the new England Patriots, you know, good, good for you, man. I mean, you got, you got your, your redemption. Hopefully that carries forward for that young man, but it sort of got me thinking about this broader theme, the theme of redemption, which uh, as a concept, I think is a really interesting one. I mean, as a definition, the concept of redemption as a definition simply means the act of being saved from sin or evil or error. And while those first two notions don't have a whole lot to do with football, I mean, the idea of redemption from sin is relevant because it's the Christmas season and Christians who believe in Jesus Christ obviously believe in the notion that Jesus Christ redeemed humankind, or at least those who believe in him by dying for their sins uh, one of the great Christmas stories of all time, A Christmas Carol, the, the famous uh, Dickens story, is, is a redemption story. The redemption of Ebenezer Scrooge, one of the all-time jerks uh, in, in fictional history who, who, in the end, does right by uh, Bob Cratchit and some of the, uh, the, other, the other individuals in his sort of world by, by uh, being visited from var- various ghosts uh, of, of his past, present, and future, and pretty much revealing to him what a jerk he is. That's a, that's a good redemption story. Uh, you know, I think about redemption in, in fiction, you know, like there's, there's lots of great characters who have been redeemed. I think one of my favorite redemption characters in all fiction is probably Jamie Lannister from Game of Thrones. For anybody who's a Game of Thrones fan probably remembers that that the the series really begins season one episode one with Jamie Lannister throwing a child <laughs> out of a window, uh, out of a tower window basically because he doesn't want the kid squealing on the fact that he's uh, sleeping with his sister. So you get Jamie Lannister is about as low as you could possibly be 
for various reasons when that when that when the series begins. And by the end, I mean he's kind of a pillar of chivalry and a and a perennial fan favorite. Great, great redemption arc for Jamie Lannister. But the, the kind of the kind of redemption we're talking about more here is sort of the redemption from failure, the Rocky Balboa redemption, if we're going to borrow another fictional character. I think the Rocky Balboa story of the down-on-his-luck individual who doesn't seem really to be able to have a path to success in his present situation and yet figures out how to rise above. That's a great storyline. And there have been some really good storylines like that in the NFL this year. So let's let's do... Let's do a few. Let's do some redemption stories. Who are some who are some individuals or or to start with a team that have been really redeemed in 2023. And if you're going to have this conversation, I think you have to start with the Detroit Lions who who clinched this past weekend their first division title since 1993. Their first in 30 years. Their first ever NFC North title. Uh, and it was, it was the they, they were in the NFC Central before the league reorganized, and and their first overall title in 30 years. And and you have to feel happy for the Lions. They're a good story. They're a likable team. They play for a coach whose passion is infectious. Uh, I'm going to read you. I'm going to read you a speech real quick. This is Dan Campbell. It's just an excerpt from the speech. This is Dan Campbell, Lions head coach speaking at his introductory press conference when he got the job two years ago, right? And here's some of what Campbell said at the podium when he was being introduced to the media as Detroit's head coach about what type of team he hoped to shape in Detroit. Campbell said the following. He said, here's what I know. I know this team is going to take on the identity of this city. And this city's been down and it's found a way to get up. It's found a way to overcome adversity. So this team's going to be built on that. We're going to kick you in the teeth, all right? And when you punch us back, we're going to smile at you. And when you knock us down, we're going to get up. And on the way up, we're going to bite a kneecap off. And we're going to stand up. And then it's going to take two more shots to knock us down. And on the way up, we're going to take your other kneecap. And we're going to get up. And then it's going to take three shots to get us down. And when we do, we're going to take another hunk out of you. And before long, we're going to be the last one standing. And that's going to be our mentality. And if you hear if you hear that speech, if you're a Lions fan, right, the perennially losing Lions who hired Dan Campbell two years ago, and you hear that at the introductory press conference, you're psyched. You're psyched. You know, history tells you that it's not going to come to fruition, that the Lions are going to be the Lions. But if you hear that speech, how can you be anything less than excited? How can you not be like, I'm going to roll, I'm going to roll with this guy? And that's really been the football team that the Detroit Lions have been. They have been rolling with that Dan Campbell mentality. Knock us down. We're going to get back up. Biting kneecaps. Love that. Love that imagery. <laughs> you know, the imagery of a, of a team biting kneecaps. And if your favorite team's not biting kneecaps, well, maybe they should be. Because the Lions are a great story. Uh, a, the perennial loser that has been redeemed and is now a division champ. And as it stands today, as, as we do this podcast today, Detroit is in a three-way tie for, for the top seed in the NFC. They could conceivably wind up being the number one seed with home field advantage, a bye week, and a pathway to the Super Bowl. I don't know if it's going to happen, but it's within the realm of possibility. So 
congratulations to Dan Campbell and the Detroit Lions. All right, let's talk about some other redemption stories from the 2023 season. Here's a trio of quarterbacks who have experienced you know, redemption in various phases or in various durations. Let's start with Baker Mayfield, right? Baker Mayfield down in Tampa Bay, who, who many people thought his career was over. And when Tampa settled on him this offseason to replace the retired Tom Brady, it was generally seen as a one-year deal where Mayfield would just be the placeholder to whomever was next. But he's actually been really good. Mike Sando of The Athletic wrote a really interesting piece the other day where he compared Mayfield in 2023 to Brady in 2022. And by just about every metric, Mayfield's an upgrade. And I mean, if you had put money on the fact that Baker Mayfield would play better football in 2023 than Tom Brady did last year, uh, you would not have gotten a lot of takers on that bet. But he, but he has been. I mean, for Tampa Bay's eight and seven right now, first place in the NFC South. They were seven and eight at this point last year. Um, so it's a, a mild improvement, but improvement nonetheless. 26 touchdowns, only eight interceptions. The fact Baker Mayfield's only thrown eight interceptions is, is a big deal because he's a guy who's turned the ball over a decent amount in his past. 64% completion percentage, 96.2 QBR. That QBR is almost 10 points higher than Tom Brady's was last season. Tampa's won four in a row. They're going to get this to, to close out the season with a couple of division games. Pretty good chance they will win that division. So... If that's the case, we'll see Baker Mayfield back in the playoffs. And again, not something that many people expected. Another interesting redemption story, Joe Flacco of the Cleveland Browns. First of all, it seems really weird to say Joe Flacco of the Cleveland Browns. I don't know, after years and years of rooting so hard against Joe Flacco, and I really did not like Joe Flacco when he quarterbacked the Baltimore Ravens, because as a Steeler fan, obviously you're conditioned to dislike the Ravens, and Flacco seemed to be particularly unlikable. Uh, after years of him quarterbacking the Ravens, I don't know if I could get used to Joe Flacco if he were the quarterback in Pittsburgh. I, I don't know if I could ever make that transition. So it must be a weird one for Browns fans. But I don't think they mind. Because in four games as Cleveland's starting quarterback, Flacco has thrown for over 1,300 yards. That's incredible. Averaging over 300 yards a game. In the last three games, the Browns are on a three-game winning streak. And in the last three games, Flacco has thrown for 311, 374, and 368 yards. What a phenomenal run he's on. Uh, and now Cleveland at 10-5 and five with closeout games against the Jets and Cincinnati. They got a really good chance to be 12-5. and five. And, and, and that number one wild card out of the non-division winners in the AFC. So... Didn't see that coming. Joe Flacco, 38 years old, getting up off his couch about a month ago and leading the Browns on a playoff run. A lot of redemption going on there for Joe. One more, Steelers fans, Mason Rudolph. Here's another unlikely redemption story. And, and now redemption is, is relative. We'll see how long this lasts, right? I could have made a Josh Dobbs re reference here or a Tommy DeVito reference here. But those guys are both career backups who had a few great moments, but the longer they stayed in the lineup, the more their flaws were revealed. And that might wind up to be the truth about Mason Rudolph, who will get his second straight start this week when the Steelers travel to Seattle. But Rudolph, who became the starting quarterback for Pittsburgh 
in the absence of Kenny Pickett's injury and Mitchell Trubisky just playing terrible football, led the Steelers last weekend to a 34-11 win over Cincinnati, ending a three-game slide for the Steelers. Rudolph threw for 290 yards, two touchdowns, no interceptions, led Pittsburgh to their largest point total since 2021. Incidentally, that's the last season where, where Rudolph actually started at quarterback, Did not has not made a start in two and a half years. So this is Mason Rudolph, who you'll remember probably back in 2019 was probably most famous. Maybe the most distinguishable moment of his NFL career was when Miles Garrett ripped Rudolph's helmet off of his head, Rudolph's own helmet, and clubbed him in the head with it, clubbed him in the bare head with it. That was probably the most notable Mason Rudolph moment to a non-Steelers fan. Steelers fans will remember him as a third-round draft pick uh, that drew the ire of Ben Roethlisberger. Roethlisberger publicly remarked, why would we waste a a third-round pick on this guy? And then Roethlisberger proceeded to pretty much ignore him because he probably saw him as a threat to his job in the dying days of Roethlisberger's career. And when Rudolph did get a chance to start, he wasn't very good. And, you know, the Steelers benched him, and then they brought in Mitchell Trubisky last season, and Rudolph became the third quarterback as Trubisky, and then Kenny Pickett started. And he was just an afterthought. He, he, was, he was only re-signed at the last minute this past season and is, is widely perceived as being a guy who Pittsburgh will let walk after the season ends and yet came out on Sunday and played some lights-out football for the Steelers. Now, whether or not he can keep it going in Seattle, this coming Sunday will be very interesting to see, but for one le- week at least, an excellent redemption story there in Mason Rudolph. All right, let's do one more real quick before we go to the break. One more redemption story. And here's a guy, I don't know how many people who know this guy out there, but a guy named Tylan Wallace, right? Punt returner for the Baltimore Ravens. You know, broader His broader role is as a special teams player. Little known player, not a major player on the Ravens roster. But he's a really good story about redemption in in the moment, about how it's so important, so much like Chad Ryland, right, to stay focused on your job, to not be too high or too low. One of the things we try to use at Ocean City High School, where I'm the head coach, is to have a next play mentality. We talk about it all the time. Have a next play mentality. Don't get too high or too low about what just happened. You scored a touchdown, great, man. Take Take a couple seconds, celebrate with your teammates. But forget it. Move on because there's a lot of football to be played. Similarly, you do you screw up. You miss a field goal like Chad Ryland. You throw an interception. You get beat deep for a touchdown. Shake it off. Don't dwell on that. That you can, after the game, you can reflect all you want. But there's there's too much football to be played in front of you. Football is unforgiving if you're not focused in the moment. You got to have a next play mentality. You get, you just go play to play and you do it the best you can on each play. And that's your all of your focus. And so Tylen Wallace. Special teams player for the Ravens, who two weeks ago lined up offsides on a punt, a punt return actually in the third quarter in the Ram, in the Baltimore Rams game that gave the Rams a first down, uh, and LA ultimately then went down and scored the game tying touchdown. So Wallace's offsides gave LA the ball back, and then allowed the Rams to go down, score a touchdown, tie that game up. That game goes to overtime. But the Rams' normal punt returner, uh, Devin DuVernay, was out with an injury. And so now Wallace has to go onto the field in overtime to field the punt. And in wonderful redemption style, 
kicks it 76 yards to the house for a walk-off touchdown as the Ravens beat the Rams 37-31. Great, great little anecdote there about how important it is to be focused, much like Chad Ryland, and, and be able to do your job even when you may have some doubts in your head. You may, you may be doubting your own ability. A guy like Wallace, in that instance, it, you know he doesn't redeem himself. He gets in his head too much. He muffs the punt now, and you've made two major mistakes. That might get him cut but he's able to focus and rebound and get that walk-off punt return. Great moment for him and a great little anecdote about redemption in the moment and the, uh, the, the importance of staying focused on your job, not getting too high, too low. All right. Redemption story. It's been a really interesting 2023 from that perspective. All right, we're going to take a break. And on the other side, we'll turn our attention to the ran uh the the 49ers Ravens game from Monday night the 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 nightcap of uh, uh an interesting Christmas day of football and really Christmas weekend and and we'll talk about three things we learned what did we learn from that that Baltimore convincing Baltimore win over the 49ers what are some takeaways and how might those things affect the postseason so come on back Kevin Smith with you in the first part of the show. We were talking about redemption and the theme of redemption as it applies to the 2023 NFL season. I ended that segment by making a reference to Mile High Stadium. I think I dated myself there. Uh, it is now called Empower Field at Mile High. That's a stupid name. That's a stupid name. And they should have just kept it Mile High Stadium because Mile High Stadium is a great name. And uh, I can't. I can't acclimate myself sometimes to the, the new stadium names. Heinz Field will always be Heinz Field to me. It will not be Acrisure Stadium. Heck, I, I go back to, to Three Rivers. I, I went to Three Rivers a bunch of times. And I, I, I don't know. I love the old stadium names. I like I like Soldier Field. I, I like, obviously, Vets Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia. That, that was a cool name. Memorial Stadium in Baltimore way back in the day when I was a kid. I mean, obviously you have a, a romantic attachment to some of the, the places that you visited as a younger person, but just some of the names just had, had character. Candlestick Park was a great name for San Francisco's field. So these corporate names, I don't know, man, that's just me being old, I guess. But I, I struggle to A, remember them and, and B, to, to embrace them. So before we get into our conversation here in part two, which is going to largely be about the Baltimore-San Francisco game and some of the big takeaways from that, let's give a shout out to my man, Pez. Uh, for those of you who've been listening to this show for a while, you, you may remember that at the beginning of the season, I had Pez on as a fairly regular guest where, where he was our, our in-house prognosticator. We, we brought him on board here at FFSN to pick games for us, and he's been doing so uh, so successfully that he's earned his own show. Pez has his own podcast. Uh, he and Jeff Hartman, it runs on Thursday mornings called Pez's Picks. If you just search Pez's Picks on your podcast platform, you'll find it. And he's been killing it, man. And this weekend, Pez picking both college bowl games and NFL games went 7-0, and 
which raises his overall season winning percentage up to about 65, 65%. And so when you think about it, man, as I've been looking around, most of the national guys who pick games for the athletic and the ringer and CBS sports and all those different sites, they're, they're around 50%. They're lucky to be at 50. And the AI models that have been picking games are around 52%. And here's Pez all the way up to 65%. So, so if you get a chance, man, check out his podcast and we'll, we'll have him back on our show here when the playoffs get rolling to check back in with him. Okay. So, so in part two, as I just mentioned, we're going to talk about the Ravens 49ers game, a 33 19 really beat down by Baltimore, a game that wasn't as close as that two touchdown margin suggests. And, and Baltimore did it by creating turnovers, flustering Brock Purdy, but more so than anything else, really playing physical, physical football. So here, here's a couple of, of the big takeaways from, from that game. Takeaway number one, Baltimore plays uh, a brand of football that if you're not used to it is really difficult to prepare for. I'm going to read a quote from Ravens inside linebacker Patrick Queen after the game and what Queen had to say about that contest. Queen said, quote, we play a brand of football that people don't want to play. Everybody wants to be out here being cute, playing basketball on grass and stuff, and we're not with all that. You can do that stuff. We're just going to hit you in the mouth every play. We couldn't care less about all that pretty stuff you do, gimmick stuff. You still have to line up and play football. You still have to get hit, and that's our mindset. That's how we that's how we want to come out, just hit people in the mouth. And that is precisely what Baltimore did against the 49ers. And the 49ers are a physical football team. Don't get me in, don't get me wrong. They're they're not a finesse team. They've got some butt kickers on both sides of the ball, but they're not used to playing a brand of football quite like what Baltimore does. Baltimore is a team that is going to line up. And as Patrick Queen suggested, they're going to punch you in the mouth. And that's really just sort of the nature of the beast in the AFC North, where the Ravens play with the Steelers, the Bengals, the Browns. All of those teams are physical football teams. And, and they're all used to one another. They're all used to that, that brand of football. You look at the, at the Steelers, for example. Pittsburgh's 8-7. and seven. They've lost a couple of games in recent weeks to, to bad teams. Arizona, New England at home, both of whom had just won two games at the time they beat the Steelers. And yet the Steelers in their last eight meetings against the Ravens are six and two. So, so why, why is Pittsburgh largely mediocre against the rest of the league, but, but successful against Baltimore? Largely because they get it. They understand Baltimore's style. They know how to defend Lamar Jackson. They're used to being in slugfest type football games. And when you only see that style once every few years, like the NFC teams do, by the way, interesting statistic that Jeff Hartman uh, revealed in our Whip Around podcast the other day, Lamar Jackson's only lost one game, one game to NFC teams in in his career. That's remarkable. But what it does, that, that speaks to how difficult the Ravens can be to prepare for. His style is unique. Their brand of football is different. And they went out to San Francisco also as five-and-a-half-point underdogs, which many of the Ravens players said had gotten under their skin. And so they were, they were in a mood, man. They were in a mood. And when Baltimore combines that style of play 
with uh, you know them being slighted and feeling a little bit of extra motivation. They're a difficult, difficult team to prepare for, and we certainly saw that on Monday night. So is it fair to say right now that Baltimore and not San Francisco is the best team in football? Well, I think so. One, the Ravens have the best record. They're 12 and three. In the NFC, the, the three best teams, Philadelphia, San Francisco, and Detroit are all 11 and four. So, so record-wise, they're the best team. But look, look at how they've done it. They've gone seven and one on the road. Their road, their road schedule is complete. They, they finish up with two home games. So they went seven and one on the road. They, they played three first place teams. This year, they played San Francisco, Detroit, and Jacksonville, all of whom are first place teams. And they beat those three first place teams by a combined score of 94 to 32. I mean, that is emphatic. They also won three West Coast games, which for an East Coast team like Baltimore, you know, it's tough to go across the country and win. And they won a game in London. So pretty much anybody you lined them up against anywhere in the country or even in the world, the Ravens were a dominant team. So I think it's safe to say that as of right now, they're the best team in football. Now, two weeks ago on this show, I was talking about how hands down San Francisco is the best team in football. And, and so things, this is an unpredictable season. This is a season where chaos is kind of the norm. And Baltimore has a tough contest at home at, against Miami next week. And maybe the narrative flips then, right? Maybe Miami goes into Baltimore. I'm not holding my breath on this, but maybe they go in and they win emphatically. And now the conversation changes. But as of right now, I think it's safe to say the Ravens are, are the, the team to beat in the NFL. Second big takeaway is this. I think all the talk about Brock Purdy as MVP, which we heard a lot of leading into that contest, I think that, that talk is over. And I, I thought that that talk was inflated to begin with. I, I take nothing away from Brock Purdy. He's a great story, and he is playing great football. Uh, the fact that he went from being Mr. Irrelevant to being a uh, an excellent quarterback on one of the best teams in football is a great story. But San Francisco is a product of, one, a great system, the Shanahan system, and two, tremendous skill players. They are as loaded at the skill positions as any team in football. That I'm not suggesting you can just plug any quarterback in and win there, but I don't think Brock Purdy is the only guy who could have piloted the 49ers to an 11-4 and record this year. I think that there are many quarterbacks in the league who, if you put them in San Francisco, would find similar success. If you want to get, get an idea for how dependent Purdy is on the weapons that the 49ers have, go back to the middle of the year when they were out missing Christian McCaffrey and Debo Samuel, and they dropped three straight games, including a game to the Cleveland Browns, who at the time were being quarterbacked by P.J. Walker. And that'll give you a pretty good idea as to how important it is for the entire ensemble cast to be on the field in San Francisco. The 49ers are banged up right now. They're, they're missing starters on the offensive line. Purdy got dinged up again near the end of that contest. Sam Darnold had to finish uh, the Baltimore game out. So it'll be really interesting to see how Purdy rebounds from A, his worst statistical performance of his career, right? Through four interceptions, had his lowest QBR of his career. And then B, whether or not the 49ers can bounce back quickly from really just sort of, you know, having, having a bully come in and stomp on their lunch. So San Francisco, uh, you know, has to travel across the country to Washington 
next week. Washington is not very good, but it's a big rebound game, I think, for the 49ers. Right? Nobody likes to to get their butts handed to them on national television uh, on a in a big game like a Christmas night game. And so we'll we'll see for both a Purdy. How does Purdy respond to you know his worst statistical game of his career? And, and probably his worst emotional game of his career. There were times in that game against Baltimore where Purdy just looked lost. He looked confused. He looked unsure. And obviously, the Niners will want him to get his confidence back. Uh, and then obviously, the Niners. How, how will they respond to that beatdown that the Ravens administered? But anyway, I, you know, the conversation will probably move to Lamar Jackson as being the MVP favorite. I still think Christian McCaffrey should be uh, in that conversation near the top. So whether it's Jackson or McCaffrey, that will be a you know a conversation for a different day. Great year that Brock Brock Purdy is having, but I think Sunday night or Monday night, I should say, pretty much ends the campaign for his MVP. All right, our last takeaway as we move forward now and we start to look ahead to the playoffs, uh, are Baltimore and San Francisco still the favorites in their respective conferences? I th- I say that the answer is yes. Uh, Baltimore is going to basically have a showdown game. Next weekend with the Miami Dolphins, or this coming weekend, I should say, with the Miami Dolphins at home, they can clinch the conference with a win. Their players talked openly about that after the San Francisco game, about how badly they want to wrap that thing up. If they lose to Miami, they and Miami are now tied with the Dolphins having the tiebreaker, and the Ravens would have to win at home in Week 18 against the Steelers and hope that Miami then lost in their finale at home against a hot Buffalo team. So you still, you know, if you're, if you're Baltimore, you don't want to chance it. You don't want to have to rely upon the, the bills to do your, your work for you. They want to wrap that up at home. Miami has been notoriously bad on the road, especially against good teams. So whether or not they can go into Baltimore with a Ravens team feeling really good about themselves and pull the upset remains to be seen, but Baltimore, I expect them to win that game and wrap up the AFC. And then over in the NFC, San Francisco, I mean, they're in a three-way tie at the top of the conference with Philadelphia and Detroit. Everybody's 11-4, and but the 49ers hold all the tiebreakers. And their closing slate at Washington and then home against the Rams is uh, is pretty soft. Philadelphia's is soft as well. They host Arizona, and then they end at the Giants. But the Niners have the head-to-head over Philadelphia. And then Detroit, they got to go to Dallas and then host Minnesota. They probably got the toughest of the uh, closing slates there. I'd be surprised if San Francisco loses one of their final two. So look for them to wrap up the NFC. Both those teams should get a bye and and set themselves up for a, a Super Bowl rematch, right? So I, I'm not laying money on it or anything like that. But but I would be I would be surprised if we don't get a rematch of Monday night's. Baltimore San Francisco game in the Super Bowl, and it should be a great one. And I really have to think that what transpired on Monday night favors the 49ers if we do, in fact, get a rematch, simply because, as I mentioned before, I think the Ravens are a hard team to prepare for stylistically on both sides of the ball. Their physicality and speed on defense, and then the challenge of defending Lamar Jackson on offense. I think they picked off Brock Purdy, both mentally and physically on Monday night and they, the 49ers didn't do a good enough job of keeping Lamar Jackson in the pocket and allowing him to get outside and create plays with his athleticism and that the lessons they should learn from that 
should benefit them if they are to match up again with Baltimore in the Super Bowl. I hope it comes to that. I, as a Steeler fan, you know, obviously I, I hope the Steelers can make the playoffs and make a run, but I'm also a realist and I see that as a long shot. But but from just from a put, football perspective, j- just as a fan who loves the game, a, a Baltimore-San Francisco rematch would be fascinating. The chess match between Shanahan and Harbaugh, based upon what we saw Monday night and what we might see going forward, would be fascinating. So for the sake of the league, man, that that to me is the game we all want to see in February. All right, man, that's going to wrap it up for me. Episode 37 here at the call sheet. We'll be back next week with another episode as we head into the penultimate week of the NFL season. A lot lot at stake for a lot of teams in the league. It'll It'll be fantastic to watch and then talk about next week. So I hope everybody had a great Christmas, a great holiday. And now as we head into New Year, uh, we'll also have some some New Year's re- wishes and resolutions on next week's show as we look forward to 2024. Have a great week, everybody. I'll see you again soon.